Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. No matter how brilliant a writer may be, they are inevitably limited by the time in which they are writing. Frameworks of critique expand and change, and in turn affect how authors, editors, and audiences think. Yet one constant in the public discourse about race has involved black public intellectuals and artists processing their pain for primarily white audiences, omitting or downplaying the many other areas of black life. On March 7th, Harper's Magazine presented an event at Book Culture with Emily Bernard, author of Black is the Body, and Michael Denzel Smith, author of Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching, where the two authors read from their recent work and discuss the limits of thought around race and how they seek to break away from them in their writing. Thank you all so much for being here. And thank you to Emily for coming down from Vermont and to Michael for braving the New York City subway. Um, I guess one was harder than the other. Um, we're really so pleased to have you both here um, to discuss your recent work in Harper's and the broader spectrum of your work. Um, Emily Bernard is the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont. She is a contributing editor to the American Scholar, and her work has appeared there, as well as in Oxford American, Plowshares, The New Republic, and elsewhere. Her writing has also been collected in the Best American series. And Emily's most recent book, which you all have, Black is the Body, was published last month by Knopf. Michael Denzel Smith is an essayist and cultural critic whose work has appeared in Harper's, The New Republic, The Nation, GQ, and elsewhere. He is the author of the memoir, Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching, published by Bold Type Books in 2016. And he is currently at work on his second book, book which we all eagerly anticipate. You have to say that out loud. <laughs> yes. yes, I do, because you owe me an essay. you got to get the book done first, then the essay for me. Um, so please join me in welcoming Emily and Michael. So what we're going to do is have each of them read an excerpt from their work that appeared in Harper's, and then we will have about 20 minutes of conversation and then plenty of time for audience questions. So Emily, if you'd like to start. Actually, I didn't. You didn't choose it that yeah, passage. Totally fine. My introduction. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is, um, I call it Beginnings, my book. This book was conceived in a hospital. It was 2001, and I was recovering from surgery on my lower bowel which had been damaged in a stabbing. A friend, a writer, came to visit me in the hospital and suggested not only that there was a story to tell about the violence I had survived, but also that my body itself was trying to tell me something, which was that it was time to face down the fear that had kept me from telling the story of the stabbing, as well as other stories I needed to tell. I began to write essays. The first one I published was Teaching the N-Word. Over the next few years, more essays followed, along with several attempts to write about the stabbing. I couldn't tell that story yet because I didn't know what it meant. It took seven more years for me to understand that the experience of being at the wrong end of a hunting knife was only the situation, not the story itself. It was the stage, not the drama. In the situation and the story, the art of personal narrative, Vivian Gornick writes, the situation is a context or a circumstance, sometimes the plot. The story is the emotional experience that preoccupies the writer, the insight, the wisdom, the thing one has come to say. 
The setting of scar tissue, which is the essay I eventually wrote about being stabbed, is my gut. The blood let flow by the knife is the trail I followed until I discovered the story, which is the mystery of storytelling itself and how hard it is to tell the whole truth. Each essay in this book is anchored in this mystery in blood. They are also rooted in contradictions, primary among them being that the stabbing unleashed the storyteller in me. In more than one way, that bizarre act of violence set me free. But of course, the stabbing has been a source of misery as well as opportunity. For instance, I suffered from recurrent excruciating bowel pain for many years before another trip to the hospital revealed that I had developed adhesions in my bowel. The surgeon was able to untangle my intestines and scar tissue, but he warned me that the adhesions would return. There was nothing I could do to prevent or predict them. You're just unlucky, he said sympathetically. The pain, he assured me, would be random and severe. It did return, thundered again throughout my body, and sent me back to the hospital, where a third surgeon ceded to the inherent mystery of the malady and confessed that medicine was more art than science. The gift of his honesty was, to me, as valuable as any solution to the problem would have been. Once I accepted the randomness of the situation in my bowel, life took on a new urgency, and so did the desire to understand it. I turned to art over science, story over solution. I found a voice. The book imagined in 2001 began to take shape in a need to know, to explore, to understand before it was too late. In so far as a personal essay is at heart an attempt to grasp the mysteries of life, the form made sense to me on a visceral level. The need to understand, in fact, was what engendered the stabbing in the first place. I met the knife head on. Something in me just needed to know. Each essay in this book was born in a struggle to find a language that would capture the totality of my experience as a woman, a black American, a teacher, writer, mother, wife, and daughter. I wanted to discover a new way of telling. I wanted to tell the truth about life as I have lived it. The desire evolved into this collection, which includes a story about adoption that is pragmatic as it is romantic, a portrait of interracial marriage that is absent of hand-wringing, and a journey into the inward that includes as much humor as grief. These stories grew into, into an entire book meant to contribute something to the American racial drama besides the enduring narrative of black innocence and white guilt. That particular narrative is not false, of course, which accounts for its endurance, but there are other true stories to tell, stories steeped in defiance of popular assumptions about race, whose contours are shaped by unease with conventional discussions about race relations. These other true stories I needed to explore, but I was mainly driven by a need to engage in what Zornel Hurston calls the oldest human, the oldest human longing, self-revelation. The only way I knew how to do this was by letting the blood flow and following the trail of my own ambivalence. And I'll stop there. Sorry, everyone, that Andrew Cuomo made us late, um, but that's why I didn't vote for him. Um, I'm going to read just a bit of an essay that appeared in Harper's and that Rachel and I worked on for like nine months. Um, and hopefully, uh, it's my first time reading this out loud in front of an audience, so hopefully I don't stumble too much over it. Uh, uh, here we go. Uh, 
Toward the end of the Obama presidency, the work of James Baldwin began to enjoy a renaissance that was both much overdue and comfortless. Baldwin stands as one of the greatest American writers of the 20th century, and any celebration of his work is more than welcome. But it was, it was less a reveling than a panic. The eight years of the first black president were giving way to some of the most blatant and vitriolic displays of racism in decades, while the shooting deaths of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and others too numerous to list sparked a movement in defense of black lives. In Baldwin, people found a voice from the past so relevant that he seemed prophetic. More than any other writer, Baldwin has become a model for black public intellectual work. The role of the public intellectual is to proffer new ideas, encourage deep thinking, challenge norms, and model forms of debate that enrich our discourse. For black intellectuals, that work has revolved around the persistence of white supremacy. Black abolitionists, ministers, and poets theorized freedom and exposed the hypocrisy of American democracy throughout the period of slavery. After emancipation, black colleges began training generations of scholars, writers, and artists who broadened black intellectual life. They helped build movements toward racial justice during the late 19th and 20th centuries, whether through pathbreaking journalism, research, or activism. At a time of national upheaval, Baldwin adroitly described the rot of white supremacy eating away at the possibility of American democracy. But his most famous book, The Fire Next Time, is emblematic of the dilemma that has always faced the black public intellectual, which Adolph Reed described memorably in the pages of The Village Voice. Black intellectuals, Reed wrote, need to address both black and white audiences, and those different acts of communication proceed from objectives that are distinct and often incompatible. Being a black public intellectual has always meant serving two masters, and one of those masters is so needy that the other is hardly tended to. Fire Next Time, published in 1963, consists of two sections, both of which are warnings. My Dungeon Shook is a warning to Baldwin's young nephew about what awaits him in a world of racism's creation, and Down at the Cross is a warning to white Americans about the consequences of their failure to properly address the Negro problem. Read together, the two essays are a literary meditation on the corrosive effects of racism on the black American psyche, but the split structure is revealing. Down at the Cross is much longer than My Dungeon Shook. Baldwin speaks at length to white people, while his nephew, and by proxy, his black audience, is given short shrift. There's a part of me that wonders what the fire next time could have been if Baldwin had devoted the entire book to his nephew, or perhaps to his niece. What questions might he have raised? Would he have focused solely on warnings, or might he have conjured strategies of resistance? Freed from the need to talk to white people, what might Baldwin have prophesied? The dilemma is old, but the terrain is new. Black public intellectuals have grown in number and prominence over the past several decades. In a 1995 cover story for The Atlantic, The New Intellectuals, Robert Boynton cited interviews with Cornel West and Stanley Crouch on Charlie Rose, Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s op-ed for The New York Times, and Stephen Carter's appearance on the Today Show as proof of the rise of black public intellectuals. He also mentioned scholars and critics such as the historian Manning Marable, feminist sociologist Bell Hooks, law professor Randall Kennedy, poet and essayist June Jordan, cultural critic Michelle Wallace, and more. This cohort, Boynton wrote, was the heir apparent to the New York intellectuals of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and that they were consistently and publicly addressing some of the most heavily contested issues of the day. That same year, Adolf Reed took a bleaker view of the new generation in his Village Voice essay. According to Reed, these intellectuals did little more than use their elite credentials to garner prestige from white gatekeepers eager to have them explain black culture. Reed argued that because they spent their intellectual capital entertaining a white audience, they had so far failed to focus on the black audience, which desired careful, tough-minded examination of the multifarious dynamic shaping black social life. 
and so they had formed no real program to combat white supremacy. As the internet democratized publishing and the rise of Barack Obama pushed the, the question of race to the forefront our national of our national politics, black thinkers became the most important public intellectuals in the country. In a 2015 essay for the New Republic, Michael Eric Dyson described a black digital intelligentsia, black thinkers who were engaging the life of the mind online. In addition to ta Coates, Dyson name-checked Melissa Harris Perry, Jamel Bowie of Slate, Joy Reid of MSNBC, Jamila Lemieux, then at Ebony, and a number of others. Brilliant, eloquent, deeply learned writers and thinkers, Dyson wrote. They contend with the issues of the day, online, on television, wherever they can. Dyson argued that what distinguished this group from the mo almost exclusively academic cohort of the 90s was that their influence wasn't exclusively dependent on validation at the university level. But the tension remained. Dyson, like Boynton before him, highlighted writers known for their contributions to publications or media outlets that are owned and operated by white people or largely serve a white audience. There were a few exceptions. He mentioned Lemieux, for instance, and Brittany Cooper's blog post for Crunk Feminist. But those who had spent their careers writing for The Root, Essence, The Griot, or any of the interactive one properties were largely left out of the narrative. It would seem that you are not considered a black public intellectual unless you are speaking directly to a white public. But if you are writing and thinking about black life for a majority black audience, which part of the black public intellectual identity have you not fulfilled? Is your work not public? Is it not intellectual? Is it not black? And that's all I read. Thank you both. Both of you are, are concerned with the expectations and narratives that accrue around blackness. And Emily, I'm actually really glad that you chose that passage to read because I had pulled out a sentence from it to, to ask you about um, when you talk about the enduring narrative of black innocence and white guilt and you say that that's not a false narrative but that there are other true stories to tell um, which are steeped in defiance of popular assumptions about race. So this is a, a question for both of you but maybe Emily we could start with you. Could you talk a little bit more about the narratives that you were seeking to resist with this book and at what point that entered into what seems to be a very personal origin story for the book. Mm. I think, I mean, I can start talking about teaching the N-word, which I wrote in 2004, um, and it came out in 2005, and it was inspired by a class I taught at UVM, which is in Vermont. I had 10 very lovely white students, and we were, uh, the class was African-American autobiography, and, you know, inevitably, uh, the, the word came into our discussion and we kind of put aside our, what was on the syllabus to talk about it, talk about why, why we couldn't talk about it. And when I started to write the essay, what I decided to do was not give a lecture. You know, I, I give lectures, I love lectures, you know, when I'm in the classroom, but I saw the page as a place to just explore questions. You know, if, if we give lectures in order to convey answers or convictions, then I wanted to be questioning and I wanted to be vulnerable and I wanted to be a person in that essay as opposed to some kind of oracle around race and what is discursively permissible. Um, because, you know, there is a collapse. You know, we, we, we hear it, it comes up, and then somebody does their mea culpa and, you know, then you may or may not lose your career or otherwise compromise yourself uh, and then we continue. It's the same dance and it's just boring you know there's just nothing to be learned from these empty public uh you know uh, public apologies and so i wanted to explore that in between and and i did that you know it, literally the resistance there is in the essay itself i mean it's told in episodes you know there's it's not a um 
you know, I, I didn't do it in a str uh, kind of linear narrative because I wanted to leave room. You know, for me, this book is about being in conversation. You know, and the best thing I think I've heard so far, uh, I hadn't thought of it, but some, someone described it as an, as an invitation. And I wanted the reader to feel like there were spaces in between so that they could imagine and reflect and think about what, what this experience meant for them. And I literally kind of, I deliberately, um, you know, even though it's, we go back and forth in time, I wanted to make it a journey and literally taking the word for a walk. So I think that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to use that space again to ask questions and to resist the urge to make, you know, grand pronouncements about who can say what. Um, I wanted to, you know, enter that space. And so that, I think, implementizes what I... And then I, I wrote the essay, and I hadn't at that point thought about writing a book, but it made sense then. I sort of had a way to go, a map, after I did that. Mm -hmm. And, Michael, you also started the process of working on this essay feeling uncomfortable with the narrative around the black public intellectual and the sort of battle royale that you had detected in, in sort of the way that the Cornell West, Tanhazi Coates conversation had gone down. Can you talk about kind of that narrative and how you thought about challenging it? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think most people here will probably remember when that took off online, when Tanahasi Coates and Cornell West were supposedly engaged in some kind of debate uh, because Cornell West you know, was talking a little shady in the New York Times. But uh, I was deeply uncomfortable with the reception to what like really was not a debate at all. Like Cornel West said some things, Tanasi responded, Cornel West like wrote a little something, Tanasi responded and then it was dead. Or would have been, like had like the the white public consuming it that like had a desire to see these two men duke it out uh, on a public stage, uh, had if they had let it die. And like it just was revealing to me that uh, the, the actual substance of what the two of them are talking about completely got lost. But it's these cult of personalities that, have, like, that rose up around like Ta-Nehisi and Cornell. And, and you're essentially a white public determining that black people had to take sides in this and that that was going to determine black political future. And it's just like, I mean, there's more than two of them, right? Like, there, there are much many more than two of them debating these ideas in public. Uh, and there are more than two ideas to debate. And there are people who are not men, who are not cisgender, who are not hetero, who are adding to this debate every single day. Uh, so the amount of attention that that was getting bothered me and I, you know, Rachel and I, we, we sat down not too long after that had taken place and I, I just, I wasn't sure what I wanted to say about it, but what I, what I wanted to, what I knew what I wanted to do was to ex, like explode the notion that that mattered so much, right? Like that, that a debate between the two of them mattered so much that like, headline after headline needed to come week after week and people were like sitting and waiting with bated breath about when the next time one of them would say something it didn't matter that much because you you can look at the landscape of black public intellectual life and black public intellectual work and see that 
there are many concerns and people doing work across disciplines and fields and, and, and without even sort of the white public gaze that is more vital to me uh, in, in many ways, but also just more enriching. Emily, as someone who's actually in the academy, do you have a reaction to that moment or just to the larger issues of black public intellectual life and how it's represented in, in public discourse? Yeah, I love reading your essay, but I, I don't know, I don't think of myself in that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just trying to write a book, you know, and it feels alien to me to kind of think about myself belonging to that kind of category. Mm -hmm. um, so, no, I mean, I, I, was, I was interested in it, in a, like a lot of people were, but I, um, it, didn't, it didn't register to me as something that felt crucial to who I was or felt that would change the way I, I, I wrote. I mean, it was, it was unfortunate. I mean, it was a sad moment. But no, I guess I, I don't see myself as operating within that, that group of, of the public intellectual, really. I mean, if people read me that way, great, if that's useful as a category, but it's not, I think, central or organic to, to how I see myself as a writer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that was one of the things that you wanted to say with the essay was kind of to explode that category as something mm. that was so, you know, so talked about or, or that there was kind of one representative who, you know, was the authentic voice of black public intellectuals, that, that just the landscape was so much more vibrant than that. Yeah, to, to get beyond the idea that like the few you can name are the ones whose work is most meaningful, right? Uh, and that, that to say like, and to consider the question of who counts as a public, right? Like if, if their work is, and I, I mean, I know that my work also is mostly consumed by white people, right? Like I, I know that uh, that's, those are the outlets that I write for, uh, that, uh, that, that that's a public that I am engaging. But the question is, uh, if the only work that is uh, being seen or being considered as black and, and intellectual uh, is that which directly engages white people and white people's feelings, uh, how much are we missing right, by ignoring those who are speaking to different audiences? Both of your books have been described as memoirs. And Emily, before we um, started, you mentioned that you saw yourself more as an essayist and I um, your book is described in its jacket as a memoir of sorts but I was hoping to talk a little bit about the power and risks of the personal mm -hmm. bringing the personal into political argument and um, mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about the origins of the book how do you see it it's a kind of hybrid mm -hmm. form um, and how it evolved mm -hmm. well it, it evolved one essay at a time you know and a lot of things happened in between that that the, the first essay I published and the six weeks ago when the book came out. Um, but I didn't think of it as, yeah, so the memoir thing is in some ways a very shrewd um, and somewhat you know, cold calculation about what people are buying in terms of books. And so the mantra I heard was, you know, essays don't sell. So that was the way we decided to, to frame it, or my editor. Um, and I think, you know, but then I was, I was brought around to the idea that the, 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 uh, these are stories, you know, and my, my editor, asked me to reflect on you know, what 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 do people how do people receive that term you know the essay and and I, I I think I'm I am so concerned with the the narrative and the alive you know qualities of that I, I wasn't I, I didn't I get dig it brought around to that mm -hmm. 
but the question about, you know, I guess locating it in the personal, I think um, that's what I wanted to do. Because I think that that gets diminished a lot. I have a friend who wrote a book called The Sovereignty of Quiet. Um, it's Kevin Kwashi, who teaches at Brown. And his argument is that, you know, we so often think about black expressive culture as public and as always answering to a kind of politics. And, you know, so of course we agree that that is very limit, limiting and who decides what that is. But his argument is that, you know, what about the interior? You know, what about the mundane and the everyday? And doesn't that describe us also as, as black people that we also, you know, do the laundry and do the, we do these things and that often is how we, where we live, you know, where we are able maybe to let our brains react and dwell in that human place that lets us be complex and, and contradictory. So I, I was, I, that's what, what I was going for, um, that, that place of ambivalence, again, in, in our interiors, in the place where we can let down those public personas. So, you know, it felt important to me to write in that very personal way. And I just want to say, you know, I start with this, and I should always feel like I should have a trigger warning about mm. the stabbing, but, um, you know, that's where I start the book. And... It was a way to get that very public story. It was a very public story happening in New Haven. It was pretty remarkable in 1994 for that kind of violence to happen randomly. Um, but I wanted to kind of do that because I wanted to say, okay, this happened, and to you know, engage a reader, an imagined reader, on that very personal way with actually a literal scar. But, but really what I was interested in was pursuing you know, that, that place of quiet and kind of the, the ways we live our lives that are maybe beyond that realm of language and just in the habit and the routine. So that was a challenge I had a lot to, to let, you know, to think about the kind of language that would honor that, you know, honor, honor the everyday in our lives and, um, and let that, let that be, be central. Mm -hmm. And did you feel pressure to expand into the political or was that something that you were actively resisting or you felt that it was just not the subject of the book as it kind of emerged from your personal experience. I think, yeah, the, I think the, the last thing you said, it just, yeah. it just didn't happen organically. And, you know, I think, I like to think there's a kind of politics. I mean, I grew up in that era, like the personal is political, and mm -hmm. I believe that. So I like to think that there's a small p politics running through the book. But, um, you know, I just didn't, that's just not where I wanted to, that's not where I live organically. And mm -hmm. it didn't feel like the right to the book. I mean, it would have been then a public, treatise or something. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be true to who I am and what I care about. I also think that in some ways, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there's a, maybe a feminine refusal, mm -hmm. you know, in that to speak for anyone, you know, besides myself and to, you know, Emily Dickinson said, tell the whole truth, but tell it slant. And I really li always like that. That always really excites me, the idea that, you know, you can get at the truth by kind of telling stories and maybe you can open that new door in the reader. So, yeah, I just didn't feel, I felt like I, you know, the, and I like. I just want this book to be able to sit at the table. You know, it's not there to replace any other kind of narrative, you know, because those public narratives are really important. Those stories about resistance are important, but I think, you know, that's what the book is just asking, like, the, enter, enter into that conversation on its own legs. Right. Yeah, it sounds like for you, the personal was a way to resist those narratives. I think part of Michael's essay and conversations that we had um, were about kind of how the personal can be used to sort of reinforce certain narratives. And can you talk just a bit about the evolution of your career, where you started writing, and then yeah. sort of how, after Trayvon Martin, sort of things changed a little bit and how you thought about it? Yeah. 
So I, I do sort of bristle whenever like, I hear my book described as memoir because I'm like, I didn't set out to write a memoir uh, for a number of different reasons. Like one, my life is just really not that interesting. Um, and then also, at the time I was writing, I was 28 years old, and you have no business writing a memoir at 28 <laughs> years old, right? Like, you got nothing to say. Um, but, but to me, though, like, the project is one of, the project is a political one. And it, for me, the pers using the personal is sort of the uh, literary tool in which I'm trying to get people to wrestle with these ideas. Um, because I think uh, it is important to is important for the political project to note the ways in which ideology permeates and defines even the parts of our life that we don't think about uh, it, it seeping into, right? Uh, and so I want to take sort of the the everyday and the like the things that you're not considering. Uh, and and ask you to consider then the, the deeper implications of how we get there uh, and why and like how the world is constructed to make uh, the your actions, uh, your thoughts, your behaviors the way that they are, right? And I wanted to do that specifically um, with the, the the book, you know, Invisible Man, I got the whole world watching. Like I'm writing very specifically uh, to 17 year old black boys who I imagine in, as the audience for this book, in part because Trayvon Martin was a 17 year old black boy when he was killed, and that put me in the the mind space of of thinking back to my own self at that age. And it's like, what do I wish I had then? What is, what is the book that I wish someone had written to me at that point? Um, and it, it, is, it, is, it is also a challenge to the canon of black male literature uh, that had been handed down to me at that point. Like, it's like, yes, Native Son and Black Boy and you know, Invisible Man itself. And, uh, but here's this literature dealing with uh, the survival of white supremacy, right? Like, and the idea being when you hand this literature to 17 year old black boys, it being inspirational as if to say, look, they did it, they survived it, they made it past it, like, and you can too. Um, and I guess that has its role, but also for me, um, what I wanted to say was like, some of us don't. Uh, some of us don't survive it, uh, and then those of us who do are are left after those folks don't survive, and we have to deal with the interior of our own lives and the political project of building a world in which those folks could have survived. Um, and then also uh, just the fact of like white supremacy being the... Uh, the vector through which we view the entirety of black male life uh, without addressing or interrogating the ways in which black male identity is also shaped by patriarchy and capitalism and homophobia and all of these different forms of uh, oppression and systems of, uh, of uh, repression that we, 
that our identities are formed in the crucible of. So I wanted to un like do the work of starting to unpack that for myself. And the way to do that is to note where it plays out personally, right? Like to to point to the the sort of lodestars of black male life uh, that I interact with and have interacted with through that time period that the book covers. Uh, and say, this is how I reacted then. This is what I know of it now, uh, having considered it more. And I think that that, for a reader, they're able to follow along with my own thinking and let themselves think through that for themselves as well. But there was also, I remember, some feeling on your part that that white editors in particular were searching for a particular kind of personal narrative from mm. black men um and i would be curious emily if you felt this about black women but the um you know the the change in your writing as you moved from mostly outlets that were facing a black public to um a white public how that played out for you yeah uh because <laughs> i'm just gonna just continue biting the hands that feed me because <laughs> You know, let's do it. We're here. You know, most of the you know white New York publishing is like good liberals. You know, who like are like, no, tell me about how painful it is. Like, I want to know because if I know, then something I don't know. I don't know what the step is between like them knowing and then something and then like <laughs> everything being all good. But like, they really want to know. They really want to know the pain. You know, because that's helpful some way. Uh, and it's like, no, it's like mine it more and more. Tell me every time there's a shooting of a young black person, tell me how painful that is. Tell me how hard it is to grow up and being black in America. Please tell me again and again and again. And we can, and, and at the same time, it's like, you're telling me the pain, but we're using you as an example of someone who has not, who, who survived it, right? And say, it's possible because he's one of the good ones, right? Like there's this, there, there's this real uh, paradox here in which like uh, good white liberals can't make up their mind what they want. Um, and and so, so like this essay in, in many ways was sort of my like parting shot from that world to say like, I'm not doing it anymore. Like I've, I've exhausted that. Uh, I've exhausted it psychically and and I hope, like, my hope is to say, like, I'm bowing out and to say to those, like, gatekeepers, like, I hope you don't impose this on anyone coming behind me. Your essay talks very explicitly about white spaces and existing in white spaces and the excerpt, Emily, that ran in Harper's was also about that in a more quiet way about sort of the tick-tick, if you want to explain that, mm -hmm. of your life in Vermont and kind of the weighing of of how you feel mm. in an overwhelmingly white state. And I'm curious how you feel that that dynamic has shaped your work um, mm. in general and in particular with this book. I mean, I have to confess that I think in some ways the feeling of alienation of living in Vermont has been very good for my work. So, I mean, it's just true. <laughs> I can't lie about that. Um, but I will tell a story that, that you know, occurs to me now. I. I was giving a, a, a talk. I was giving a talk on Beloved, and I was in Norwich, Vermont, in this beautiful, adorable little New England church. And you know, I I, I did all of it, and I had my slides, and every, and at the end, a woman stood up, and she said, she was she was edging toward, and I'll just get to the chase. She basically wanted to know about 
my pain. And it really startled me because I worked on this presentation of Beloved. You know, you went pain, here we did that. And um, I, I thought, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, you got Paul D's bit and she wanted to see my bit. And I thought, you don't get to see my bit. You know, and I, you know, it doesn't, you're not entitled to that. And I think even in this book, you know, I, I like to think of it as very personal, but we write and there are stories that have their lives on the page, but, and ourselves are in those stories, but there's also ourselves that, that don't belong on the page and uh, are not part of a story that's useful. It's just about kind of almost a pornographic consumption. You know, now we have so much is available, of course, in terms of what, the kind of violence and death we can, that's readily, and I'll never forget, you know, that moment, and you could see Saddam Hussein being executed. It's just like, this is wrong, you know? H how is this helping anyone? And what is the effect of that? Um, so, you know, who was consuming, yeah, right, exactly, who was consuming this stuff, these images and these stories, and for what purpose? Um, so I was wondering that a lot over the course of, of, of writing the book, um, you know, how to, how to maintain a sense of integrity and, and composure you know, uh, which is important to me in my writing, uh, to think about composition, but, you know, and how to tell a true story that was also my story, you know, how to preserve those things that are, that don't belong there, you know, just, you know, we bleed on the page, but, you know, you want to consume something other than, than blood, you know, you need something that coheres. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we have to be aware all the time, as were our ancestors, you know, um, and in your essay, you talk about Michael about you know the the slave uh, writers of slave narratives, you know, and how they managed brilliantly the demands, the real live demands, to produce a kind of pain that would inspire abolitionists or people who are on the fence to free you. Um, and it persists, I think, and it's sort of maybe epigenetic, you know, in the literature itself. You know, the idea that it, the literature inherits. You know, it's all, we're always building, right? There's always a tradition that we are engaged with. So um, it is, I mean, in some ways, you know, that battling with uh, whiteness is, that's what blackness is, you know, in some essential way. Like that battle continues generation to generation. It's not extraneous to who we are, but in fact, you know, that battle itself is part of the substance, you know, that we're, we're always, it's always a negotiation, it's dynamic, right? Blackness is dynamic and, you know, it, it definitely, it, it is the changing same, build on what is already there. So, it, yeah, it's something I think you know we'll uh, we'll we'll always be considering, and what it would mean to be free of that. You know, what kind of work then what would that look like? Thank you both so much. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.